Uh, so uh, let me see how I'm going on here. Oh, there's a light. Okay, the light has dawned. <laughs> uh, so I want to uh, thank you. Uh, Ruth and I would like to thank you for your prayers and concerns uh, following the death of her father last Friday. Um, so death is always a painful and uh, grievous thing. Uh, but uh, for us as Christians, it is, uh, the, the sting of death is taken away uh, by the promises of God. And um, Ruth's dad uh, was a Christian man. Uh, he became Christian in his twenties, um, uh, uh, and um, he had this habit every morning. He would disappear into the toilet and not come out for a long time. I didn't know why he spent so long for a while, uh, you know, at first, but um, he would read the Bible on, sitting on the toilet. Uh, and every day he had, had this daily devotional, read the Bible, and uh, even ten days ago, as we were bringing him. Uh, comfort and, you know, reminding him of the promises of God. He was doing the same with us uh, and telling us about what he'd read that morning, John 6, where Jesus says, all those entrusted to me, I will uh, not let any of them perish, but I will raise them to eternal life. Uh, and so just, just lovely to see his peace and confidence uh, in the face of uh, death and, uh, and all its uh, all its inconvenience and and pain. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Uh, Will you pray with me as uh, we reflect on that and also as we come to look at uh, God's word to us this morning? Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, we do thank you that uh, you haven't left us in the dark to face the pain and the grief and the weakness and the frailty and the sin of this world alone. Uh, We thank you that you speak your word and you provide for all our needs. And we thank you that you give us confidence and certainty and hope and peace uh, beyond death into eternity. And we thank you for that those things impact our lives in a powerful way now. And we pray that even this morning, uh, by your word and your spirit, uh, you will stir in us Uh, afresh that confidence in your word and in your promises and an appreciation for Jesus and all that he has done for us and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Now each year there is a survey of Australians uh, and what we think of different professions and so on Uh, and uh, so they had um, 50 different jobs listed Uh, And uh, I wonder if you can pick what the five least respected and trusted professions were. Does anyone want to have a guess? Car salesman. I did see one list that had car salesman at the bottom, but it wasn't one of the professions listed in this survey for some reason. So, yeah. Uh, What's that? Real estate agent? Politicians? Yeah. Uh, You haven't hit the, the, the... Rock bottom one yet? Not lawyer. What was that? Insurance people. Let me, well, you, you're getting close. Uh, let me go. Let me list them out. First is door-to-door salespeople, uh, which I, I think maybe that's a shift. Uh, politicians. Yeah. <laughs> politicians. <clears throat> insurance salespeople. 
call centre staff and sex workers. You'd, you'd, you'd feel ripped off if you're a politician or a door-to-door salesman. Sex workers comes in at number five. Uh, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? What about the most trusted professions? What do you think? Pharmacists? What? Nurses? Fireys? Paramedics? Well, let's have a look. You, you, you're doing really well. Number one, firefighters. Uh, which um, This survey was done a few months ago, but how much more this week after such devastating fires? How much do we appreciate having those men and women who are willing to step in between us and the danger and, uh, and, and, and rescue us from the danger? Uh, so it is right that we honour them and, and uh, are really thankful for them. All right, um, so someone mentioned paramedics, rescue volunteers... Nurses, there's a pattern, isn't there? Uh, and that is people who help us in our time of crisis or need, uh, they're often the people that we respect the most. Um, number five is pilots. Uh, this is more wishful thinking. I really hope I can trust <laughs> the pilot. Did you know number nine was air traffic controllers? So I think it's the same, that same sort of... I don't know what they do to earn our trust, but we just want to think that we can trust those guys. Uh, um, now, the list, so as I say, the list um, is about 50 professions, but I noticed that, that priest was not one of them. Um, where do you think priest would come out of the 50 if, if it had have been listed? Top of the previous list. Top of the previous list. Um, it could well have. Um, so ministers, ministers of religion came in at 38, um, but... As Michael sort of pointed out, we're not claiming to be priests um, and this morning I'll help you see why there's a distinction between a minister of religion and a priest. Uh, and it may well be, you may well be right, Dave, that, that you know, if, if you use the word priest, it may have even been lower than a minister of religion um, uh, and because priest tends to have that traditional religious type uh, aura. Um, but this morning, I want to persuade you that we need a priest at number one, uh, which, is a, which is radical, especially for Australian culture. But you need a priest that you can trust more than anything, more than a firefighter, more than a paramedic, more than a nurse. You need a priest there as the person you can trust more than anyone else. Um, <clears throat> and so that's my job this morning. I want to, from the, uh, and, and what I'm... What we're talking about when we talk about priest is not a priest as an Aussie thinks about a priest. Uh, an Aussie would define a priest as someone who gets up in that, you know, the, the special clothing, they're irrelevant and maybe even worse, corrupt and abusive. Uh, that's the sort of stereotypical uh, view of a priest in Australian society today. But we want to define a priest as, as defined by God in the Bible and, and by the end of today, I want to I convince you that we need a priest at number one. So I want you to have a look at the screen as part of our setting, um, setting our minds right for this passage. God is. God is. What's the next word you would put? God is Holy, you're very, you know, like you're very um, in Leviticus frame, aren't you? God is holy. How would most Christians answer that? 
God is love, right? So that's the thing that um, instinctively comes to our lips. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not at all saying that's a bad thing. It is amazing to say that God is love. But sometimes we don't understand how amazing that is. Uh, sometimes it's just a sentimental, nice thing to say, but we're not really astounded. You know how a lot of the songs talk about amazing love? Uh, just, it's like the, the songwriters were blown away by the wonder of God's love. Sometimes, because we're just so familiar with God is love, yeah, that's what we expect him to be. Uh, and it's because we haven't grasped hold of what many of you said, that God is... Holy. Uh, And unless you understand that God is holy, that is he's pure and perfect and righteous and completely set apart, unless you understand that God is holy, you will not gasp in awe and wonder when you realise God is love. The, The two things, we must hold them together or we deprive both of them of their real significance. Uh, God is holy... And another way of expressing that is God is a consuming fire. Uh, You see that description a number of times throughout the Bible. Uh, It's quite an awesome way of describing God, isn't it? God is a consuming fire. But it's not just an Old Testament description of God. So notice in your outlines, I've got a, a reference from Hebrews 12. And even for us Christians... We need to hold on to the truth that our God is a consuming fire. See right at the end of that Hebrews quote? Our God is a consuming fire. That is still true today, just as it was thousands of years ago. But the idea that God is a consuming fire was etched into the minds of the people of Israel in a powerful way. Uh, When they gathered at Mount Sinai. Now, they'd been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. God gathered them to Mount Sinai and there was the thick cloud and the lightning and the thunder and the fire coming from the top of the mountain. And then the voice of God spoke uh, from the midst of the fire and the blackness and the cloud. It was an utterly terrifying sight. The people knew... As they stood there at the foot of the mountain and heard the voice of God, they knew that they could not stand in the presence of the holy God. They couldn't stand in the presence of this all-consuming fire and so they said to Moses, you go. You go up to the mountain. You go and talk to God. And so while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, receiving the laws, Moses' brother Aaron leads the people of Israel to make a golden calf and they bow down and worship the golden calf just show us there Dave um, as if it was God the very thing God had told them not to do and if you read Exodus 32 God says this put this quote on the screen leave me alone this is what God says to Moses leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God's anger was burning against his own people. Here is the problem. 
Here is the biggest problem of all. How can a sinful people stand in the presence of the holy God and not be consumed? How is that possible? Uh, Because if you grasp anything of the character of God and his perfection and his purity and his awesomeness, you will realize that is our single biggest problem. How can a sinful people stand in the presence of the holy God and not be consumed? Um, And I think the answer is hinted at straight away. So the very next thing that happens is that Moses stands between the people and God. Moses acts like a priest. That is a go-between. He pleads the case of Israel to God. Uh, He pleads on behalf of the nation, spare this nation, show mercy to your people. And God hears the prayers of Moses and his fierce anger relents. Um, Moses, Moses is very much like a fireman protecting the people from a destructive blaze. God's anger is burning against his people and Moses steps in between and pleads the case of Israel and God's anger, God's burning anger is turned aside. Now, what is the very next thing that happens in the story, uh, in the history of Israel? What's the next thing that happens? Well, there is judgment that comes, but, but... God's anger is turned aside and then God gives instructions for the tent of meeting. That is the very next thing. Uh, And let me just show you again. This is something of a picture of what the tent of meeting looked like. There's the courtyard where you would come and offer your sacrifices, the altar where you would place the sacrifices. Uh, There's the holy place where you, you were getting closer to the presence of God and so it was covered over with thick, animal hides but then even inside the holy place is the most holy place again there's a curtain that separates it and there with the ark of the covenant you know the place where god's covenant between his people is kept that that place represents god's presence amongst his people and for the holy god to meet with this sinful people, three things were required. Three things are needed. Firstly, the tent of meeting. So firstly, the tent of meeting and the instructions for that are at the end of Exodus. Secondly, sacrifices are required. Sacrifices for sin and atonement where an animal without defect is slaughtered in my place to turn aside God's anger against my sin. But we need one more thing, and that is we need a priest who can offer those sacrifices. And so Leviticus 1 to 7 is all about the sacrifices, and Leviticus 8 to 10 is all about the priests and preparing the priests for their role. These men who would stand between the holy God and a sinful people uh, God equips the priests for their role. And so we get to Leviticus chapter 8 and you realise the tent of meeting is not yet operational. All we've had is the instructions, the tent's been built, all the instructions for the sacrifice have been given 
But no sacrifices have been offered for the people yet. It, the sacrificial system is not yet in operation. What is required first is the preparation of the priests. Um, the priests have to make sacrifices before God. Sorry, the, the priests have to have these preparation before they can start offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so what happens when you're in Leviticus 8 is the whole nation is called together. The priests are then called out to the front. Uh, they are presented to the people. They are washed. Uh, they are anointed with oil. Um, and remember that word anointing. The Hebrew word is uh, Messiah, uh, which in Greek becomes Christ. Uh, the anointed one, the priest was the anointed one. Um, they are decked out in their priestly clothes like this. Uh, and I'm sorry you don't have a colour version in your outlines, but uh, that's sort of a, a bit of a picture. And I'm disappointed that Michael looks more Hawaiian than priestly this morning. Um, but if you read through chapter 8, you'll see the bits and pieces, and I won't go into the details... But it's interesting, isn't it? We're used to our firefighters wearing special protective clothing as they go to face the fire. Um, if God is an all-consuming fire, then the priests also need special clothing. But it's not, it's not like fire-rated clothing. It's, it's clothing that sets them apart as holy, as different, as special. Here is a sinful people approaching a holy God you can't just do that in an ordinary stroll-up, walk-up, casual way. Right? We need these specially appointed people in their specially appointed clothing after they've been washed, after they've been anointed, and then more than that needs to happen. They need cleansing of their sin. Have a look at verse 14. There is a bull for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons uh, laid their hands on its head, this bull brings atonement for the sins of the priests. Or verse 18, a ram for a burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head to bring atonement. Verse 22, there is an ordination offering. Um, and it's all about preparing the priests and this meeting place for the open day where the people can start bringing sacrifices. But... Before that can happen, the priests have to have their own sin cleansed. Um, and have a look at verse 33. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for your ordination will last seven days. And what was happening on those seven days, where the people are gathered, the priests are, are, are doing their preparation... Well, if you read Exodus 29, and I've, I've printed that in your outlines, verse 35, Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them, sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. So they didn't just offer sacrifices for atonement for sin once on one day. They did it for seven consecutive days. Uh, to make the priests and this place fit for the people to meet with God. 
Um, what does it all tell you? What does this tell you? Well, one of the things it tells you is that sin is a universal problem. Uh, even the priests require seven days of cleansing, seven days of sacrifices for their sin to turn God's anger aside from them before they are qualified to offer sacrifices for the people. We've we, we got to never lose sight of this truth. Sin, that is offence against God, disobedience to God, going our own way, sin is a universal problem. Just have a look around. Just have a look around the room. You're allowed to look. Don't, don't stare at someone for too long. Um, <clears throat> some people, it's obvious they're sinners, isn't it? You know, some, you know, and I'm not going to name any name. Uh, but for some people, it's obvious. And you sort of think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doesn't surprise me one bit. All right? um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But some people, it's hard to imagine them sinning. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. They are sinners. All of you and me. Um, We all have our weaknesses, our failures. We all have things that we are ashamed of. Some of us hide that well. Some of us just don't choose to talk about it uh, openly. But we all have it. None of us is immune from this. We all have habits we can't get under control. Every single one of us here in this room has a sin problem. And it's important to hear that because sometimes you can come into church and feel out of place. Sometimes you can... I know that there have been people who have come to church and felt like, oh, they all seem so good and I just don't feel... Worthy to be here. Don't be deceived. It's not true. And we're not, hopefully, we're not even pretending that that's true. And please, please don't think of me as if I am somehow less of a sinner than you are. Just talk to my wife or my children, and they'll they'll make it, they'll set you in your place and, and. I am every bit in need of forgiveness and cleansing and atonement for sin as you are. When it comes to this problem of sin, there's a level playing field. We all desperately need cleansing and forgiveness and atonement. So remember two weeks ago, I said, you know, the sacrifices that were offered day after day after day throughout the life of this nation of Israel. And I said, the sacrifices never let you forget This truth, I am a sinner, God is holy, I deserve to die. And every day, uh, you would never forget that. Gee, gee, that's something we need to remember. Like, I don't think think we need to keep beating ourselves up, but we we must never forget this is the foundational truth uh, that I need to, to come to Christ and appreciate what he's done for me. I am a sinner, God is holy, I deserve to die. And that puts us in the place where we are ready to hear God's word of grace. Um, And so as the people of Israel stood and watched this ordination service, these seven days of sin offerings for the priests, 
It reminded them of this truth. I am a sinner. God is holy. I deserve to die. But it also reminded them of something else. And that is just what's the priest is a sinner. God is holy. The priest deserves to die. And over seven days, that truth is reinforced day after day after day. The priest is not actually different to me when it comes to the problem of sin. We all need forgiveness, even ministers of the gospel, even priests. So, having prepared the priests for seven days, it's time for the grand opening of the tent of meeting. And what happens at the grand opening? You know, all the sacrifices for sin have been offered. The priests are ready to do their work. What happens on day one? Well, the people bring their sacrifices to the tent of meeting. Verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Can you just imagine Aaron and his sons? Like, it's relentless. Relentless. Because he's now got to do another sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of the people. Right? Um, please don't feel like you need to repeat this process um, you know, if you ever get a replacement minister for me. Right? And that is, you know, for eight days, just remind them that they're a sinner. That they're, you know better. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness. You deserve to die. And that, it, hopefully, they will know that very well. And maybe, maybe you know, you could remind them. You know, and just say there's a precedent here. And uh, but wow, you would be in no doubt, would you, as, as the people and as the priests of the problem of sin. Um, and listen at the end of the chapter, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people, blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. It's just and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. What a, what a wonderful response. Joy and fear. And so appropriate, isn't it? Right? Joy, because finally, here is a way for, for a sinful people to come into the presence of the holy God. How exciting is that? But it is, it is joy mixed with great fear because this is the holy God. And when you see the fire come out and consume the offering, you just are reminded, I do not approach this God lightly. Uh, joy and fear is a great combination uh, in our approach to God. And there's a phrase that is repeated at least 16 times throughout chapters 8 and 9. Uh, anyone know what that phrase is? It's just like a, uh, a pulse, a heartbeat through chapters 8 and 9. 
What's the phrase? As, yeah, as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded. Uh, and, and you really feel like as long as the priests and the people approach God as God has commanded, then everything is okay. Um, there is... There is basis for joy and fear as long as we do things as God commanded. But then chapter 10, verse 1, there is a little phrase that sends a chill through our bones. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses and put fire in them and added incense. Just let me show you a, a, a censer on the screen. Um, it's one of those, like, um, I don't know exactly what it looked like in those days, but you see even priests in some traditions holding these things today. And the idea is that you would put um, hot burning coals in them and you could transfer fire from one place to another and they'd put incense in um, with the censer. Okay, so Aaron's sons took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. Now listen to what it says. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And after hearing the words, as the Lord commanded, 16 times, now we hear the words, contrary to his command. What happens when people approach God contrary to the way God has commanded? Well, the result, verse 2, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. It's just, can you imagine the sense of shock and horror and tragedy? This is the opening day of the tent of meeting. Day one. Even on this first day of operation, the priests fail in their duty and and it results in their death. The fire comes out and consumes them. And we're left with this problem, a very real problem of finding priests we can trust. Because um, humanity is corrupt. You know, and as soon as you put a human being in a position of responsibility, chances are they will abuse that position of trust and power uh, and authority. Um, finding priests who will follow the word of God completely without, without putting in their own spin, without deviating. Um, now, we've already been nervous about Aaron, haven't we? Because he was the one who was involved in the whole golden calf thing. But we thought, God is merciful. You know, maybe this can work. But now his sons come Day one confirms our nervousness. We have a problem of finding a priest who will follow the word of God completely. Now, I just want to make a bit of an aside at this point. This week, as I was wrestling with this passage, I read about a Christian conference in the United States called, um, here it is up on the screen, Strange Fire. Did anyone hear about this conference? It caused a massive controversy. Because um, what happened, it was, it's run by John MacArthur Jr. 
uh, who many of you would have heard of. Uh, he's certainly a guy, um, you know, I, I've read his stuff and respect him. R.C. Sproul, Joni Erickson Tata, you know, we're all speakers at this conference. Um, but the controversy came, so the, the, the conference was controversial because it was all about sounding a warning about the dangers of improper worship. So that was controversial enough. But then Mark Driscoll, I don't know if you've heard of Mark Driscoll, but Mark Driscoll came and sort of gate-crashed the conference and started handing out his own books as a kind of protest. To the, and, and, and then he said, you know, he was evicted from the conference. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, man, but the, interest, the reason I raise it is because do you know where the phrase strange fire comes from? It's from this passage. So if you've got a King James Version, anyone got the King James here? If you had the King James Version, instead of unauthorised fire, it will say strange fire. Um, Now, I haven't had time to listen to the talks of the conference and maybe I never will. But it does raise a question well worth considering, doesn't it? That is... Are there ways in which today we can commit the same error as Aaron's sons did back then? That is, are there things which we do, which we claim is worship of God, but in fact is dangerously playing with fire, uh, with unauthorised fire, where we're approaching the holy God in a way that puts us in great jeopardy of, of being consumed by his anger. Our God is a consuming fire. He determines how we worship him, not us. Right? Got to be really clear on that. God sets the rules of how we worship him, not us. Uh, so our worship of God is not based on personal preference. In a sense, it doesn't matter what you prefer. Right? It's what does God want. Um, uh, it's not about personal taste. It's not about convenience. Uh, it's not about, well, what, what's easiest for me here? Um, it's not based on entertainment, pleasing the audience. It's not based on whatever other churches are doing. You know, what are the latest trends going around the Christian world? Right? Our worship of God has to be based on the commands of the Lord, right? What has God said? Uh, What has God instructed us? That is how I'm going to worship God. I keep listening to his word and never deviate from it. So that's my aside, right? Leviticus chapters 8 to 10 are all about what is required for a sinful people like us to worship a holy God. We need three things, and we need these three things today just as much as ever. Firstly, a place to meet, a place to worship God. Secondly, we need an acceptable sacrifice. And thirdly, we need a qualified priest. But from day one, we realise there's a problem. And the problem is finding a priest I can trust. Uh, who will follow the word of God completely. Um, I don't know if you remember the movie Backdraft. Um, It just sort of came to mind because I was thinking about firefighters and God as a consuming fire. 
Um, what, what, what happens in this movie is that there is a series of these explosive, devastating fires that this fire crew are, are sort of tracking down and they just feel like they're plagued by these and some sort of arson is lighting these fires. Um, and by the end of the movie, you come to the chilling realisation that it's one of the firefighters themselves who actually have this morbid fascination in playing with fire, so to speak, and, and seeing the destructive power of fire. Um, now, it's like that from the opening day of the Tent of Meeting. Day one, and the whole system fails because of the priests. The priests who are meant to stand before, between sinful people and the holy God to protect them, yet the priests are playing with fire by disregarding the word of God. And you see that pattern repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Priests entrusted with such great responsibility, but who are sinners like the rest. Now, there is the occasional priest who honours God. Um, Can anyone think of an example? Eli? Phineas is the one that I had in mind. Uh, I think, was he a son or a grandson of Aaron? Uh, but you'll read about him in Numbers 25. Uh, so there is the occasional good priest, um, but he dies. He doesn't live forever. And those who replace him abuse their position. They fail to offer right sacrifices. You know, you come, you come a thousand years later to the days of Jesus and the high priest in the days of Jesus is part of the evil conspiracy to crucify Jesus. And you realise just how deep corruption has taken heart of even the priests who are meant to stand between me and God. How ironic that the high priest conspires to kill Jesus. Because as the pages of the New Testament unfold, we realise Jesus fulfils all three of those things. The high priest puts him to death, but Jesus is the place where God and men meet. Um, And John's gospel, John really tries to make this very explicit. He says the, the word became flesh, and he's talking about Jesus, and he tabernacled amongst us. Uh, He set up his tent amongst us. John's making it really clear that the place where God and man now meet is in the man Jesus Christ. Uh, And so Jesus is the place where we meet with God. He is the qualified priest, sinless, perfect. You know, he's a man like us, but he doesn't give way to temptation and sin. And he offers the perfect sacrifice, his own body offered to turn aside God's anger from us. So earlier I put up on the screen the the words, God is. He's the acceptable sacrifice. God is, um, and the next word we instinctively think of is love. And yet we read the book of Leviticus and you instinctively add the word holy. Perfect, pure, sinless. God is a consuming fire. And I want to say it's only as we come to grips with the holiness of God and our own personal sinfulness, if we understand those things, 
then to hear that God is love, right? God is holy, right? God is an all-consuming fire. Then to hear that God is love is the most wonderful news imaginable. Uh, it's something that you want to sing about. Um, and I, I, really, I really hope that you're not tiring from hearing the, this book of Leviticus. Right? We've got a fair way to go. Um, but I hope you're not tiring because you're only, you're only experiencing, you know, you're only being drawn into this whole world exposure of the holiness of God just a bit. Right? Uh, you know, spare a thought for the people of Israel. It went on for days and days and weeks and uh, this was their life. Um, but even if you catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, it will serve you well because it will stop you becoming proud. It will stop you becoming arrogant as if you're somehow better than other people and it will, it will give you an appreciation for the love of God that you cannot know unless you know the holiness of God. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? Offering a sacrifice to the holy God and the love of God. Those things come together. The holiness of God, the love of God come together beautifully in the death of Jesus. And, 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 and this is why we want to sing about this sort of thing. Or have a look at the um, passage from Hebrews 4. Therefore, it's in your outlines, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith we, faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As you know, my father-in-law died two days ago and he was a sinner like the rest of us. And I read his testimony the other day and he talked about... Uh, gambling and his love of money and drink and uh, that was before he came to know Jesus but even after he came to know Jesus he was still a sinner for him to come face to face with the holy God on his own he would he would not stand a chance but he had a priest he had a priest who had offered the perfect sacrifice in his place he knew Jesus and trusted in Jesus' death in his place. And so as he approached death in all its grief and pain and decay, he approached with confidence that he would receive mercy and find grace and be welcomed into that eternal home. So as we finish up, I want to ask you, do you know Jesus? Is Jesus your priest? Um,
Because if he is, you can approach this holy God with confidence. Confidence in the face of death. Confidence in the face of sin. Confidence in the face of struggles and frailties and weakness. Through Jesus, you can be sure you will receive mercy and grace in your time of need. So, uh, will you pray with me right now? God, our Father, uh, we want to confess that so often we approach you lightly. We lose sight that you are the holy God, the all-consuming fire. Father, we lose sight that we are sinners, uh, that we cannot stand in your presence on our own. But Father, we thank you that you have offered a way, um, a place where we can meet you, sacrifices we can offer, uh, and a priest who can offer those sacrifices on our behalf. And Father, we thank you that in Jesus we find all three of those things completely satisfied. He is the place, the only place where we can come into your presence, come to know you. He is the only priest who is worthy and qualified and able to offer his own body as a sacrifice for our sins. So Father, we pray that we will trust in him in his death in our place, and in his ongoing work as our priest, uh, pleading our case before you on our behalf. Father, as we approach death, as we approach or as we come to terms with weaknesses and frailties and habits and pain in our life, we thank you that we have a priest who stands on our behalf, uh, interceding for us. And so we entrust ourselves to him and may we never lose sight of the wonder uh, it is to have Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.